morning, everybody. We're going to finish Exodus chapter 25 today. We're going to learn about the menorah and the table of showbread. Father, I just pray that these really important symbols in the Old Testament can come alive to us as we understand how we apply the truth as I point to Jesus in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to just revise what we did last week as we talked about the Ark of the Covenant. We learned that it represents God's presence. It was where God would meet with the people. It also gave us a lot of insight into how God meets with us. So inside the box was the law, the two tablets of stone. On top of the box was the mercy seat. It was stained with blood. And God said that he would meet them above the mercy seat. And the language is clear. It's above the mercy seat. And the verse I want to read from Exodus is Exodus twenty-five, twenty-two. It says, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, or angels, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So it wasn't from below, it was from above. Jesus protects us from the penalty of the law. Why does he need to do that? Well, the next verse. The old written covenant, the law of Moses, ends in death. But under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. So that's why we need this mercy seat. So what this means is that if we try to approach God by our own goodness or righteousness, we will be judged by God's perfect law and condemned to eternal damnation or punishment. Why? Because we're all born with a sinful nature and none of us are capable of keeping the law. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 7 tells us that our sinful nature is always hostile to God. However, Jesus has made a way for us to be accepted or reconciled to God, to be at one with the Father. He made atonement for us. And last week we learned that atonement is at one meant to, make, to reconcile, to bring together. We can now be at one with God. Reconciled. How? Well, Jesus became the propitiation, another big word we learnt last week, or payment for our sins. The propitiation is the payment for our sins and the absorbing of God's wrath that was heading our way. And we also learnt that in the New Testament, the word propitiation in, let's say, the book of Romans and 1 John, and the word mercy seat in Hebrews are the same Greek word. So the mercy seat and propitiation is the same thing. The mercy seat represents Christ's sacrifice for us. The blood on the mercy seat represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. So the wrath of God that we deserved was poured out on Jesus and the legal penalty or fine, as we might call it, death, was paid for by Jesus when he died on the cross. The Bible says in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Another thing that we learnt was this was a copy of what was in heaven, which Jesus has already entered. We're going to read about that soon. So in the heavenly version, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he entered the heavenly holy of holies and applied his own blood to the heavenly mercy seat and provide a cleansing for our sins once and for all. For us all, if we choose to receive the free gift. Now, 
I just wanted to quickly introduce you to the Day of Atonement. Who's heard of the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur before? So this was the only day in the year when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. The rest of the year it was shut. It was closed off. It's the most holy day in Judaism. Its central theme is atonement and repentance. Surprise, surprise. So, some of the details that you read about in Leviticus 16 are different to what actually happens in heaven because the priest had to offer sacrifices for himself, but Jesus didn't because he was perfect. So, it's the fourth of the five annual feasts, and it's a visible enactment or role play of our reconciliation when the shed blood of Jesus was applied to the heavenly mercy seat and our redemption and atonement was completed. So it falls on the 10th day of Tishri, which is the 7th Hebrew month, and that's about now actually, mid-September through mid-October. It's the only day of the whole year that the high priest was allowed or permitted to enter the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle or temple, and when he did, he made atonement for all the sins of all Israel. So as I said, you'll find all the details in Leviticus chapter 16. You also find in there the scapegoat. You've heard of the, the phrase, oh, the scapegoat. Well, that comes from Leviticus chapter 16. That's another picture of Christ. We won't go into it this morning, though. And another significant detail I'll bring out is that the flesh of the bull calf and the goat were burned outside the camp. And that's a picture of Jesus being sacrificed outside the city, outside the city walls. So I've read that the underlying reason for the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, was that the other offerings, because they had offerings all the time, the other offerings for sin could not provide for unknown or secret sins. But this could. Leviticus 16, 34. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. So the book of Hebrews explains the link between the mercy seat and Jesus, forgiveness and reconciliation to God. You can't really understand the book of Hebrews without understanding Yom Kippur and the mercy seat and you can't really understand the mercy seat and Yom Kippur without the book of Hebrews. So these need to be taught together. So I'm not going to teach in Hebrews this morning, but I am going to read a section. So I'm going to read two sections from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 15, and then 22 to 28. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds or dead works so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. Moving on to verse 22. According to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter into heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth, who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have to die again and again, ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. So what we learn from this is that Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, is a picture of Jesus applying his shed blood to the mercy seat in heaven and in so doing, securing our eternal salvation. That's where the mercy seat fits in. So why do you think that God started with the Ark of the Covenant when he gave the instructions to build the temple? It represents his presence. It's the most important part. That's right. So what does it mean for us practically? Well, a few weeks ago we talked about Peter and the sense of failure that he got led to an important discovery. That discovery is that it's the presence of God himself within me that gives me the ability to live the human life. It is not something I can do on my own strength. So it's not like we're puppets in the hand of God, but it is by his energy and his strength alone that we can live and survive. And this has always been the way that God has worked. Like David, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Anyone who did God's work in the Old Testament was anointed by the Spirit to do that work. Anything that has lasting value, anything accomplished that has lasting value, Old Testament or New Testament, has been through God working through people. So it's not like we're just passive and I just sit here, oh, God's going to work through me, he's going to move my arm and all this kind of stuff. No. What it means is that we live under an authority and in a strength that is not our own. So, how do we know that God is with you? Now, we know that God is with us in the sense that he's everywhere. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go to flee from your presence? If we go to the heavens, you are there. If I'm bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, I settle on the far side of the sea, etc. 
even there your hand will guide me. So in that sense, we can never be out of his presence. So what I'm trying to do is make clear what this presence is that we're talking about with the Ark of the Covenant, where God wants to meet with us. We're talking about not just God with us, but we're talking about his activity on our behalf, his power in our lives, Christ living his life in and through us. So God promised Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's Exodus thirty-three fourteen. And we've talked about the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest previously in Hebrews four ten. So this presence is God in action, doing things on their behalf and doing things on our behalf. For example, there were times when God declared that he would cut people off from his presence. Well, that's physically impossible if you think of it as just God being with us because he's everywhere. But what it means is they're going to be separated from God in that they're not going to know God's power or experience God's power, wisdom, guidance, or his strength. They're going to be doing things on their own strength. Now, for us who are Christians today, sin is what cuts us off from God's presence, his power working in our lives. Now, sin is a result of, or is, unbelief or doubt. So when we doubt or we have unbelief, it's sin. And it can lead to other sins too. So, in a period of the Old Testament, God's presence was tangibly among his people in the form of this wooden box Occasionally, he came out of the Holy of Holies and the people saw this box go places. Okay, so I'm just going to show you a couple of places where that happened. So, crossing the Jordan, God gave clear instructions to Joshua regarding the ark, and the priests were to carry it into the Jordan, step into the Jordan. The Jordan stopped flowing and the people passed through. They had to follow at a distance of not less than 1,000 metres, about a kilometre. So the role of the ark was crucial in the event, but it was not the ark that brought about the miracle. It's not the ark. The ark is just a box. Because Joshua had said, declared, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Amazing things. And later... This is how you will know that the living God is among you. It was God who performed the miracle. The ark was the symbol, or the shadow, of his presence among them and of his power on their behalf. But it was God alone who was responsible. The same thing we see when going around Jericho. What did they do? They took the ark to represent God's presence. So his presence which works on their behalf. And... It wasn't this magic box that brought down the city walls. It was God's presence, his his working on their behalf. It says, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. And Joshua declared on the seventh day, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And it was the Lord who did it. So this ark, this box, symbolized all that God was and all that he intended to do for his people. What's this mean for us? Well, it's a picture of Jesus. How do we meet God? How do we meet the Father? Well, we have to meet the Father in Jesus. Just like the children of Israel had to meet God by going to the Ark, or the Ark of the Covenant, where God's glory would rest, we need to meet God through Jesus. 
If we want to know God's strength, his power, his wisdom, we receive them in Christ. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. So the ark was a shadow, Jesus is the reality, and it's dangerous when we start to replace Jesus with something that represents him. Now this has been done all through history and people are still doing it today. I'll give you a few examples so you understand this. The Israelites, they were fighting the Philistines. The Philistines beat them. And so what did they do? They said, we need the presence of God. We need God to work on our behalf. So they went and got the Ark of the Covenant, brought it to the battlefield, and they all made this massive shout. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. That's how much confidence they had in this box. But what happened? They were defeated. They turned, put the tail between their legs and ran away, and the ark was captured. Now, the story behind that too, we won't go there. But the point of that story is that they put their trust in the ark instead of God. Another example, the Jews in Jeremiah's time thought that that because they had the temple, they could do what they wanted and still be safe from their enemies. Here's a verse in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 3 to 4. Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the temple is here, the Lord's temple is here. So the Lord's temple represents his presence but it is not his presence. Eventually, what happened to the Jews? They went into captivity. The Babylonians came and destroyed the temple. Just like the ark was captured, the temple was destroyed. Another example. Some of the Jews in Jesus' time trusted the scriptures for eternal life. They thought that an intellectual knowledge of the scriptures would be enough to save them. And the same is true for some people today. They think that because they know about God, then they know God. But it doesn't work that way. I can learn all about someone, but when I knock on their door, they won't let me in because they don't recognize me. They don't know me. I'm a stranger to them. Jesus said to them, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. So I think there's many people today who make the same mistake. People trust in a church. You know, I went through this ritual, or I did this, or I've been to church all my life, or, or whatever it might be. Or maybe they trust in a person or a Christian organization or something or someone that represents Christ. They think if they're serving in a particular ministry, then they're saved. They believe that they will inherit eternal life. Now, it's dangerous because it's so easy to put your trust in something that represents Christ but is not Christ. You're putting your trust in a shadow, and shadows can't save you. Speaking of the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant, the writer of Hebrews states, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. That's Hebrews 10.1. So in the New Testament, Jesus steps out of the shadows into the sunlight. He is the reality foreshadowed. So looking back from that perspective, we recognize As we read the Old Testament, well, we've got hindsight now. We can see Jesus in everything as we read in the Old Testament. Now, Paul speaks of the gospel 
in its fullness as the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints or revealed to the saints. Colossians 1.26 Now think about this. Through the long years of the Old Testament revelation, there was always a mystery. Something was always missing. There was always something that did not make sense. You had all these rules and regulations, but what do they all mean? Why are we doing this? The mystery was never solved. But now, declares Paul, the preaching of the gospel is the declaration of that mystery. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's read Colossians. It's on the screen. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect or mature, in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on God's mighty power that works within me. And that's what it means to have Christ living in you. It's his mighty power that works within you. So why did God put all these Old Testament sacrifices and rituals and stuff there if they couldn't save anyone? Well, I read this illustration and I thought it would be worthwhile. Now, this is really going back and to the olden days and some of you young people might not know what these things are but a check you know what a check is a piece of paper you write an amount you sign it and you give it to someone the Old Testament ceremonies were like a post dated check so let's say I was going to buy something from you and I don't have the money in my account but I'm going to get paid on Friday so I post date the check I write Next Friday's date on the check, so you can't use it until then. And I write the $100 on the check. So until next Friday, that check is worthless. But when I get paid and the money goes into my account, then you can cash that check. Does it make sense? So basically, that's what the Old Testament rituals were. They were like a post-dated check. They were pointing to the time when the payment would eventually be made. The blood of bulls and goats was the check, post-dated to Calvary. It acknowledged the debt, it covered the sin, but in itself it was of little value. Only at Calvary, when the sinless Son of God was made sin, and the debt was finally paid, when Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished, he was declaring that all history might hear, the debt is paid. The money is in the bank, you can cash your check, (laughs) so to speak. There is no more debt, you are free. So today we don't post-date the check because Jesus has already died. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 1 John 1.7 As soon as we demonstrate true repentance and a willingness to turn from our sin and confess it to Christ, then Christ's righteousness is credited to our account and he takes our sin, our debt, and it's removed and we're free. We have his righteousness, and he's paid for our debt. Now, why did God send Jesus to die? Is it just so that he could 
purchase us? Is it just so he could forgive us? Or did he have something more in mind? Well, I think the main reason that God did this was for relationship. God wanted to bring us back into fellowship with him. And the forgiveness, the redemption was just the way that he achieved his end goal, which was relationship with him. So the ark was in the most holy place, not that Israel might know forgiveness, but that they might know God. So we need to be forgiven to know God, but forgiveness is not the end of it. It's knowing God, which is what God wants. That's the purpose of it. Why? So with clean hands and a pure heart, we can approach God. So let's move on to Exodus 25, verse 23, and we're going to look at the showbread. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. And here's a slide of the table of showbread. It's got the crown around it, the ridge. The bread is most probably unleavened bread. And it's got the incense thing there as well. Because when they had the bread, they had incense with it. So it says also, you shall also... And this is the only time the word also is used in describing the tabernacle. So it speaks of a connection with verse 22, which is speaking of the presence of God at the mercy seat. So its implication is that we can also experience the presence of God when we come to the table of showbread, described here. So showbread refers to the 12 loaves of bread, two rows of six each, which were set before the Lord each Sabbath. And you find that in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5 to 8. And overall, the showbread speaks of the bread of life, the word made flesh, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. Two cubits shall be its length. So talking about numbers, two is the number of union, communion or agreement, Amos 3.3. True communion with God takes place when we agree with him and confess our sins. Now, the Greek word translated confession is homologio, which means to speak the same. And you find that, like, for example, in 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, confession is a biblical sense. It's not just a matter of promising not to sin again, but rather it's simply agreeing with God and saying about any sin, this sin is depressing and defeating me, and it's hurting others. It's agreeing with God that it's wrong. So God knows our sins. Why does he want us to confess them? Because when we confess our sins, when we agree with God that what I'm doing is wrong, then sin starts to lose its power in our lives. It helps me to understand and remember that what I'm doing is not good for me. It's like you're admitting you've got a problem. In addition. When I also confess that a specific sin is blotted out by the blood of Calvary, there's a power, there's a dynamic that takes place in the Spirit that sets me free. So confession is not promising to never sin again, but simply just to call it like it is. So that's the number two. It's a union, it's a confession. Continuing in verse 23, a cubit its width and a cubit and a half its height. So... Two, going back to numbers, I mean, you can make a lot out of numbers, but this is just an application here. 
where two is the number of union, one is the number of unity. Unity in the body of Christ does not come through corporate Bible studies or times of worship because Christians don't agree on the interpretation of any given passage or the style of any given type of music. But there is one place where people do agree, no matter what the denomination, and that is at the Lord's table. When we take the bread and the wine, we all agree that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. It's his body that was broken. And that's what's united Christians for the last 2,000 years. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. So there's a crown or molding around the outside edge of the table of showbread and a smaller crown inside. So why two crowns? Someone suggested that Christ would be crowned twice. Once with a crown of thorns and then once with his reward, his gold crown. The crown of glory and honor, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. Verse 26, And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So just as the table was meant to be wherever the people were, to be carried, to be available, the Lord would say to us now, I'm available, I'm the bread of life, eat of me. And concerning communion, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, because you eat unworthily, you eat to your own damnation. Now, some people say that if you eat with unconfessed sin, you'll be damned. I don't think it means that. I think it means that he who doesn't assign a great worth or importance to communion, he who doesn't value communion, he who ignores communion, will be spiritually and sometimes even physically weak. Okay, If we, if we don't consider the bread and the wine, the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus poured out for us to be important, then we're not going to be strong. So take advantage of the bread and the wine. Be renewed and revived. Remember, they represent the body of God. So a summary of the table for the showbread. Twelve loaves of bread were baked each week, following the recipe given in Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9. Now, we don't know how big the loaves were, but they must have been quite large, given the amount of flour that was required. And it's likely that the flour was provided by the people as a gift to the Lord. So. Each Sabbath, or every seven days, the old loaves were removed and eaten by the priest in the holy place, and the new loaves were put in their place. When the bread was placed on the table, they was always accompanied by incense, which represents prayer. So the use of incense suggests that the bread was actually a meal offering to the Lord. So in thanksgiving to him for daily bread, so it was like if the people are giving them the flour, it was their sacrifice of thanksgiving to God for his provision for their needs. The loaves are also called showbread or presence bread, literally bread of faces. So the presence of the 12 loaves of bread in the holy place would remind the priests that they were serving the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. 
Now, if you put these together with the breastplate, with the 12 jewels, and the shoulders of the high priest where they had their names inscribed, you learn that the Lord feeds his people, bears them on his shoulders, and carries them over his heart. So it's a nice analogy there. But there's also a sense, and this is an application for us, in which the lows remind us that Israel was called to feed a hungry world the spiritual bread the Lord had given them. They gave the world the word of God, which is bread, Matthew 4.4. 4. And Jesus is the bread of life, John 6. Unfortunately, they turned from the Lord and ate at heathen altars, and God had to discipline them. So that's when they stopped being a witness to the world. Now, for us, the church, Paul compares the church to a loaf of unleavened bread. We read that in 1 Corinthians 5 and 10. So our job is to preach the word and tell sinners about Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And because there's no leaven, it's a picture of being pure, of being free from sin. We're not here to feed ourselves, we're here to feed a hungry world. We need to take what we have learned and share it with others. And as you know, a stagnant pool goes rank and becomes undrinkable and eventually begins to stink. And it's the same when we receive but are not giving out. Now we go to the menorah or the lampstand. Verse 31. The word translated candlestick or lampstand is a Hebrew word, menorah. So it's an oil lamp. It's not a wax candle. It's made of pure gold. And it's not made of wood covered with gold, like the ark and the table of showbread, but it's pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shafts, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, its flowers shall be of one piece. When Aaron made the golden calf, he made it from what? Gold, but how did he make it? It was molten gold. And he just poured it into the mold and the calf came out. Magically, he said. This lampstand was beaten into shape. So it's a picture of Jesus suffering. Jesus was beaten. I'll just read John chapter 2, verse 18 and 21. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Jesus was beaten and broken and killed, and then he rose again. And so the light symbolizes that. Verse 32, And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and the branches of the lampstand out of the other side. So there's seven lamps on this lampstand. It's got a main stem and six branches. So numbers again. Six is the number of man. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. So Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. So the middle candle, which is actually taller, we'll get to that in a minute, represents Jesus and we, the branches, come out from the side. We can go back to Genesis. From Adam's side, a rib was taken and fashioned into his bride. That's chapter 2 in Genesis. Jesus, our last Adam, also has his bride, the church. And his bride also came from his side, the blood and the water. 
poured out when the spear was thrust into his side. They're the fluids of birthing. Verse 33. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch, with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch, with an ornamental knob and a flower, and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. So each of these six branches had three bowls. You got these buds and knobs, and they represent an almond blossom. And almond blossom is pure white. Now, even today, the almond trees are first in Israel to blossom and the first to bear fruit. And again, that speaks of the resurrection. For he is the first fruits. He is, or the first fruit. He is the first one to rise from the dead. Verse 34 On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. So the six branches had three units consisting of a flare, a bud, and a flare. The middle shaft, however, was to have four units, and this meant it would be higher than the other six. So Jesus is preeminent. He's the one who's more important, the most important. The knobs and the branches shall all be of one piece and it shall be a one-hammered piece of pure gold. So we're of the same material as the main stem. This means that like Jesus, we will suffer as well. I am the light of the world, Jesus declared, John 8, 12. But he also said that we are the lights of the world, Matthew five fourteen. So when does the world see our light? Well, it's when we're beaten. It's when we suffer. It's not when things are going well, when all is peaches and cream, (laughs) that the sceptic is converted. No, people are convinced of the reality of the sun when they see us being beaten by problems, by hard times and by tragedy, and yet we still reflect the light of the sun. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. So the Hebrew reading of the last phrase is literally that they may light the face of it. So one of the purposes of the menorah was to light up the holy place because there was no other light in this room, only the seven-branched candle oil lamp was that provided the light. But the six branches were designed to point to the middle. They may light the face of it. So our purpose is to point to Jesus, to reflect his glory and to point people to him. So again, when do we shine the most? When are we pointing to Jesus the most? It's when we choose to embrace the difficulty that seems to beat us up. When we embrace that and when we accept it, that's when we will see Jesus, when other people will see Jesus in ways they've never seen him before. It's when you're being beaten, it's when you're in the fiery trial that Jesus is clearer to you than you ever dreamed possible. Think back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they were in the furnace, who did they see? Okay, they saw the Son of God in the midst. How real was he? Well, he was so real, they didn't want to leave the furnace. Daniel three twenty-five and 26. So, a lot of people try to get out of the fire, so to speak, get out of the the persecution, get out of the suffering, when 
in reality, it's the fire itself which causes the Lord to be seen most clearly. So embrace it. Don't run from the suffering. Let God reveal himself to you in that suffering. Verse 38, And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. Verse 39, It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. Now the only time the word he appears in conjunction with the making of an instrument for the tabernacle, the man is Bezalel. We'll come back to see him in chapter 31. And he could be considered a picture or type of the Holy Spirit. Now, the weight of this lampstand is about 60 kilos. It's pretty heavy, a massive piece of gold. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So, the summary of the gold lampstand. The candlestick, or menorah, was hammered out of 60 kilos of gold, but we aren't told its dimensions. It's a beautiful thing. It's a work of art with the six branches decorated with almond flowers, buds and blossoms. The six branches and the central shaft provided seven lamps which were fed by oil and kept burning constantly. Exodus 27, Leviticus 24. So, since there's no way to let natural light in from the outside, the golden lampstand was the only source of light available in the holy place. So without it, the priests couldn't have carried on their various ministries. So God wants us to offer him intelligent worship. So we need to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. We, we don't worship blindly. We need God's truth to be revealed by the Holy Spirit. There's lots of verses I can quote for that, but I won't. And to do that, we need the light of the Word of God to guide us. So Aaron and his sons were to trim the lance each time they offered incense on the golden altar. And we'll see later that the fragrant burning of the incense represents prayer ascending to God. The word of God and prayer must go together. At 6.4, prayer is enlightened by the word of God and the word is opened up to us as we pray. So they go together. Both the study of the word and the exercise of prayer must be energized by the Holy Spirit who is symbolized by oil, which is what makes the lampstand bright and burn. I'm not going to read it now, but in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, there's this vision of the lampstand. And in those verses, we have that famous verse, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the menorah represents energized by the spirit. The candlestick also reminds us of the people of Israel chosen by God to be a light to the Gentiles. If that's true, then why wasn't the lampstand outside so the Gentiles could see it? Well, it was in the holy place where only God and the priest could see it. So how does it symbolize in Israel's witness to the Gentiles? Well, it's Israel's relationship to God in sacrifice and worship that determined the strength and extent of their witness. It's when they turned from the worship of the true and living God and began to worship idols that they lost their witness to the Gentile nations. So Jesus Christ also came to be a light to the Gentiles and that light is spread through the witness of the church. 
In Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, the Lord stands in the midst of the seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches of Asia Minor in John's day. So, in the tabernacle, there was one lampstand beaten out of one talent of gold, representing the nation of Israel and its witness. So, the church is one people. It spreads the light through many individual assemblies or churches in places around the world. And the light in the seven lamps on the lampstand were fed by oil that was especially prepared for that purpose. There was a special oil, and you read about that in Exodus 27. Again, Zechariah 4, it's by his Spirit. And Jesus said in Acts one eight, Without me, you can do nothing. Uh, John 15.5 And what was done by the priests in the sanctuary was done for the Lord and before the Lord. And now it doesn't matter that the people in the camp were ignorant or didn't know or couldn't see what the priests were doing because God saw it all and their task was to please him. And I want to leave you with this thought. The most important part of a Christian's life is the part that only God sees. If God is pleased by what he sees and a conscience is clean before him, then we don't have to worry about what people think or say about us. He will accept our ministry and he will bless it. So I'll just say that again. If God is pleased by what he sees and a conscience is clean before him, then we don't have to worry about what people think or say about us. He will accept our ministry and bless it. Because the most important part of a Christian's life is the part that only God sees. And that's probably why the menorah was inside the tabernacle. So we spend time with the Lord, we grow in the Lord, and people see that. They don't see the workings of our relationship, but they see the result of that relationship with God. Again, they don't see the workings of our relationship, but they see the result of that relationship with God. So the lampstand reminds us that we're energized and strengthened and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The table of the showbread reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life and that we can feed on him. It's also the word of God, and we need to feed on that. And so prayer, the word of God, and we need the Holy Spirit to put into practice and to understand what he wants for us as we read the Bible. So, Father, I just thank you, Lord, for these symbols in the Old Testament. Lord, there's so much to learn about them, but I just pray that we'll keep it simple and just remember that, Lord, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And it causes us to shine, and our light shines, and the purpose of that light is to glorify Jesus. And Lord, we shine brightest when we're being beaten, when we're suffering, when we're being persecuted. And Lord, we experience your presence the most in those hard times. And Father, we thank you for you being the bread of life, and we thank you for the mercy seat where you meet with us, and you are the propitiation for our sins. And you paid the penalty for our sins and absorbed all of God's wrath for us. So we just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.